Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. The third annual Theology Slam final takes place on Thursday the 18th of March at 7pm. It's organised by the Church Times, SCM Press and the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. The finalists will speak on justice, creativity and community in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. To watch a video of the three finalists introducing themselves, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash video. And to buy tickets for the live final itself, visit churchtimes.co.uk forward slash events, where you'll find a link. I've got a very indulgent brief to talk for 20, 25 minutes or so about the books that have helped me get through the pandemic so far. And what I thought I'd do is talk for a little longer on three books and then briefly mention three other books. Uh, But first, quickly, a note about why books matter to me, especially at such a time as we're going through. In book eight of Homer's Odyssey, as many of you will know, Odysseus, the hero of the poem, who is in disguise at this point, hears a poet sing about him, Odysseus, and his comrades, about where they've been and who they are. And hearing this poet, Odysseus covers his head with his dark cloak and cries. It's a moving moment in the narrative when the poet stops, Odysseus offers libations to the gods. The poet begins again, and the tears once more make their way down his cheeks. Now, I don't think I've got much in common with Odysseus, but this I do share with him. I can remember crying at language at two distinct moments in my life. The first was as a 10-year-old boy walking into a country church, hearing a man dressed in green up at the holy end read from a little black book. It didn't quite make sense. It was language, but not as I knew it. It sounded important, weighty, dignified enough to be spoken in such a place. But try as I might, I couldn't make out what it all meant. The words were new, they were long, they were unfamiliar. And all this felt very strange. And yet, somewhere within, it felt like home. I felt I'd strolled into some place of enchantment that was far from my known experience, and yet, somehow near, intimate to me. For whatever reason, that visit, I I always describe it as a collision of something timely and timeless. And I sat there and I found I was crying. Sixteen years later, as a freshly ordained priest, I had, by the way, left theological college thinking I was going to change the world and instead found my greatest achievement was to change the parish bulletin. Well, I was sitting in a school gymnasium listening to Wendy Cope give a a reading. She was reading a poem about her grandmother. And I was brought up by my grandmother, so I tuned in. And I listened to the 107 words that made up the poem. And again, I felt tears on my cheeks. I'd read English at A-level. I knew I liked novels, poetry, plays, but something came much closer at that moment. I realised that poems are a verb. They're not for information. 
they are for formation. They stir, they unsettle, they distill. They help turn our full stops into commas. My grandmother was important to me, and here the poem was taking me by the hand and asking me to go where I'd never dared, into fears of her getting old and not being there for me. It led me into asking if I was the same person when I was with her and with my new London friends or with my congregation. Who was I now when alone or when in company? Who did I want to become? Would I ever manage it? Who would I be without her? Who would I be with me? The language of faith and the language of the poet, the novelist, the biographer, the playwright, these are the languages that, although I want to pull the cloak over me to keep up my disguises, wash me with recognitions and make me grateful for those moments of, in Herbert's words, something understood about me or others or the world or, yes, even God. Recognition, of course, is always the first step to salvation because I do believe it's unawareness that is the root of all evil. Literature is more a verb than a noun, a living conversation. Opening up the covers is opening up a door to a hospitable place, asking me to come in and take a seat. Literature makes things matter. Literature, like faith, is a celebration of the meaning of experience and of the experience of meaning. And at its best, as Jane Davis of The Reader Project says, reading can give us something real to carry home when day is done. And I hope that's what my faith does too. So I think you'll know just how important this festival is to me. Anyway, I'd better do what they've asked and tell you about some books. Well, the first book I want to tell you about is a memoir called Featherhood by Charlie Gilmore. In the animal world, some creatures, when trapped, have an ability for reflex bleeding. As a last defence, they secrete blood to put the predator off their lunch. When Charlie Gilmore visits his biological father in hospital, it only takes a few minutes before the hemorrhaging begins. Charlie can't help but think his arrival is to blame. He's come to the deathbed to seek a reunion with a father who has been an absent mystery, a man animated by his own demons and relentless in transferring them to those who might get too close. Charlie has come for answers. Instead, he gets a few clumsy, reticent words with a doubted sincerity. And his father completes his final and bloody vanishing act and the dark door to understanding slams shut. The account of this scene in the book is painful, frustrating, and yet it's a liberating moment. Heathcote Williams, the man dying, unexpectedly left his wife and his son, Charlie, when Charlie was just six months old. Admired by Pinter and Beckett, Heathcote was, and I quote, a squatter, writer, actor, alcoholic, poet, anarchist, magician, revolutionary, Old Etonian. 
Heathcote is a now-you-see-me-now-you-don't figure, haunting his son's life as well as the pages of this book. His death, like some dormant volcano, means the world is a bit less colourful, but in some important ways a bit safer too. Charlie consequently begins his own fatherhood, and it's one that, educated by wounds, is more generously attentive and loving. No one's more surprised at this than him. When he leaves that hospital, aware of the conflicts of closure, the reader is aware of that emergent selfhood that, as C. Day Lewis reminded us, begins with a walking away. This is a book that witnesses to a costly and incomplete redemption. It's a fearless tribute to beauty, resilience, courage. Let's face it, it's been known since time began that parents, the ones who bring us into life, are also the ones who have the most power to destroy us. Remember the Larkin poem? When they seriously damage our minds or hearts, we're left wondering if we will simply repeat their horror if we become parents ourselves. And Charlie is shown parental care, good parental care, by his mother, but also by a new uh, adopted father, who's a Pink Floyd guitarist. He adopts Charlie, and it becomes transparently clear that Charlie is more than capable of offering parental care himself. And he sees this through the arrival of what you might call the sprite in this book, the aerial in all the tempest. And it comes in the form of a magpie. Now, there's something about a magpie that I always think puts us on guard. Some species of crow have been shown to have the reasoning powers equal to a seven-year-old child, having some of the highest brain-to-body ratios in the whole animal kingdom. As Charlie says, magpies are one of the few animals other than humans that have been shown to recognise themselves in mirrors, implying that they are self-aware. They play, practice deception, are masters of imitation. Perhaps this is why so many myths have built up around magpies, including the belief, by the way, that they have a drop of the devil's blood on their tongue, that they were the only bird not to sing comfort to Jesus on the cross, and that their intimidating cackling came about as they laughed from Noah's ark at the other animals unable to get on board. Well, benzene, a magpie chick who's rescued by Yana, who is Charlie's future wife, becomes stubbornly attached to Charlie over two years and yet also has to learn eventually to walk away. Before this, Charlie's relationship with this bird is a riot of awe, disappointment, reverence, havoc, stillness, frustration. It is, in other words, a relationship of love. And as benzene builds a nest and then lays eggs, so Yana undergoes pregnancy. And Charlie finds himself very busy. Quote, I try to be the best husband I can to both. In the mornings, as I make tea to bring up to Yana, the bird yammers at me through the window, demanding to be fed where she sits. The painful truth is, 
that I'm not quite bird enough for one and still not quite human enough for the other. In the end, Benzine makes her way to a new life away from her adopted home, and Charlie tries to be happy for her, and wonders if featherhood finishes as fatherhood begins. Observing himself through fresh eyes, cleansed really by this unnatural friendship with the natural, a relationship of two injured adoptees, he can see how now Yana and the baby stop me from flying away. We're told that Charlie's father, instead of going to his son's wedding, sends him a statue of the cenotaph. It's a reference to the four months in prison Charlie had spent as a student, having swung from the monument's flags during the tuition fees protests. He was both high and high up that day. And would his life become one very long descent from there on? Well, love from family members, a wife, then a child, and the strange beguiling demands of this, what he calls, divine messenger of a magpie, takes Charlie on a journey from being an emotional fledgling, terrified by his own fragility, to a learner of love as partner and then as father. He approaches a place in his life where his loose ends find a home. And we as readers are left grateful to him for taking us with him through this fusion of inner and outer landscape by way of beautiful language and such generous honesty about his humane and human heart. So many resonances here for me, and maybe for you too. It reminded me of the theological truth that God loves us just as we are, but loves us so much, he doesn't want us to stay like that. We were created and are still being created. I think like many people during the pandemic, I've been reacquainted with the environment. I've been looking after the birds much better in my garden. I've been going for walks to spot wildlife and seeing the animals just so at home in themselves, doing what they do, has taught me how unnatural my world is, my life, when I'm not being attentive to that natural world. And keeping this theme to mind, I loved Helen MacDonald's Vesper Flights. Helen MacDonald has said that it's now very hard to write about the natural world without also writing about grief. And this truly beautiful collection of essays by her is therefore a lamentation as well as a magical unveiling of the world's daily miracles and the surprises felt in the heart when our environment appears to invite us back to our senses. MacDonald is a naturalist, poet, illustrator, whose award-winning book H is for Hawk, exploring her attempt to train a goshawk after the sudden death of her father, won a lot of admiration. Vesper Flights is not, she writes, rooted in bereavement, though, but in love. Love, she says, for the glittering world of non-human life around us. The essays place us amongst pigs, deer, goats, cranes and ants. They take us swan-upping on the Thames, mushroom-picking in Thetford Forest, on an amble in winter woods and migration-watching on the top of a New York skyscraper.
In each, the author derails our expectations by showing how the outer world shifts our inner world's compass, pointing us to the unexplored places within that may be part of the home we've been searching for. To read this book is to be taken on journeys you never really realised you wanted to take, but make you profoundly grateful you did. The title of the book, by the way, is taken from the life of Swifts, the bird, she says, suffused with a kind of seriousness very akin to holiness. In summer evenings, Swifts ascend into the sky as if summoned by a bell, higher and higher, until they disappear from view at about 8,000 feet. These are their Vesper flights. They make such a sense at dawn as well, and up there they can see the distant clouds and assess the possible courses of oncoming frontal systems. They fly up high to work out where they are and what they need to do next. They are, says MacDonald, quietly, perfectly orienting themselves and are therefore instructive creatures and my fable of community because some of us are required by dint of flourishing life and the well-being of us all to look clearly at the things that are so easily obscured by the everyday, the things we need to set our courses towards or against. Well, this is obviously MacDonald's vocation in this world, and as vocations always work, we're all inspirited and enriched by it if we have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Very much a sense in this book that God is in the world as poetry is in the poem. It won't surprise you perhaps to know that I read uh, and have read a fair amount of poetry during the pandemic, poetry uh, remaining the language that doesn't quite make sense to me in order to make sense of me, a language I don't understand yet, it understands me, I think. So always, um, Auden, Thomas, Herbert Elliot, uh, the unadorned lyricism of Helen Dunmore and Mary Oliver uh, has drawn me over the last months. And I've been very helped by the first collection of Sean Hewitt's poems called Tongues of Fire. Sean Hewitt is a research fellow at University College Cork. This book has a, a striking cover, as you can see, with an image of part of a tree with a, a bright rust fungus growing on it. The, the fungus is called Tongues of Fire. And Hewitt writes about this. It can't go unnoticed that these are tongues speaking from the branch, something sacred becoming physical, something spiritual pushing out into the matter of the world, something unspoken being given voice. Hewitt believes that the fungus is emblematic of many of his poems, which he says are working away at a boundary where nature the body and something beyond the body meld and interact, speaking to each other and of each other. And these poems are rooted and calm, they're intense without commotion, they're contained without imprisonment. Many reviewers have noted a spiritual gravity to them, as well as the poet's quest for symbols in the environment. He has a very invitational form of expression. He draws us in with a, an almost liturgical lyricism. Many of his poems find him kneeling as if the sort of rich plurality of the present moment 
uh, compels a reverence or openness to meaning. And you find lines in these poems that resonate with that sense. Our life is a theophany, he writes. And in this world, I believe there is nothing lost, only translated. And only something old and impossible can save us. Hewitt wrote to me in an email, we, we try to excavate something from inside ourselves, something pre-verbal, emotional, entwined in memory, and bring it up onto the page, into words and into form, as truthfully and as carefully as we can. And his poems really are a beautiful example of that land of exchange between religious and human desire and imagery. Uh, and for the person of faith and for the poet, there is this shared perception of how vital it is for us, and I now quote from him, to bring some life up to the surface unharmed. Is there a better hope than that in this time of lament and loss? To bring some life up to the surface unharmed. Then, very briefly, three last books. Pandemics, of course, can push us into a lot of uh, self-scrutiny uh, and excavation as to who we are when we're in an empty room uh, without company or touch or when death comes close or too often. So Frank Tallis's The Act of Living, What the Great Psychologists Can Teach Us About Surviving Discontent in an Age of Anxiety, subtitle, has been very helpful. From our need of narrative to our narcissism, our sense of inferiority, our warped mirrors, divided selves and acquisition addictions, Talus is always accessible and insightful. Our tragedy as human beings is so often we only accept as much love as we feel we deserve. And this is a book that teaches us that it's better to try and transform our hurts rather than transmit them. And for me, this uh, left me wondering what can happen when we really do believe that God looks at us with a passionate, tearful delight. I have to admit that I don't read as much theology as I used to. I try to do my theology on edges, I suppose. So much of it seems to be um, ignorance on fire or intelligence on ice. But I did enjoy David Dark's Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. I love the fact he reminds us that religion happens. He knows what religion can mean to many today, negatively, but he has no desire to be any advocate for militant silliness. Here is a much more modest, wise and cautious route. He says he's informed by a sensibility he heard articulated by Maya Angelou. I'm always amazed, she said, when people say, I'm a Christian. I think, already? It's an ongoing process. You know, you keep trying and then blow it and trying again and keep blowing it. I was um, reminded of Sarah Miles, who told me that her conversion was not so much, I once was blind and now I see, as 
I once was blind and now I have really bad vision. I think in a pandemic, I needed to know the heart of why I'm a person of faith. And this book helped. I'm struck by those words of Graham Greene that I don't quite believe my unbelief. And this book prodded some thoughts around that area. Finally, pandemic for me has also meant I've had to escape. And I love a crime thriller from time to time. And The Hunted is Gabriel Bergmoser's first novel. And oh my goodness, I couldn't put it down and I couldn't pick it up because it was so scary. It's what you might call outback noir. It's set in the wastes of Australia and it begins in a service station on a little used highway. I can't tell you any more because it brings it all back. Now, Normally, when I'm alone in the house, every noise is a serial killer. And this didn't help. But if you like sitting on the end of seats or keeping yourself awake at night, this is for you. It was in danger of making me, as the Australians say, a few kangaroos loose in the top paddock. Books. Uh, it's not how many you get through, but how many get through to you, I suppose. So a memoir, some poetry, some nonfiction, some fiction, some theology, which is often a combination of all those. This has been my uh, pandemic reading. It's been a horrible time, this pandemic. Like many, uh, I've suffered with it. I've lost close family through it. But if Pablo Neruda was right when he said that you can cut all the flowers, but you cannot keep spring from coming. Then I think for me, it is books and friends, both places where those loose ends find homes that offer me the first buds of hope and which always break open our solitudes of existence into some shared and connected recognitions. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.